So Psalm 3. Um, I'll just read this. Um, does anyone really want to read this? Yep. Okay, Sasha. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying in my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. They laugh. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all round. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Okay, so let's pray before we start to look at this psalm. Lord, please help us to hear your word in this psalm so that we might live it out each day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first, this first, the, sorry, the first psalm that we did two weeks ago um, and the second psalm are introductory psalms to the book of Psalms. But this, this is the first psalm that isn't an introductory psalm. And it's a powerful testimony to God's saving power. In a way, it's, it's also itself an introduction to the rest of the book of Psalms. Unlike those first two Psalms, however, this, this Psalm has a very specific historical context. Its title says that it's a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The details in the Psalm's poetry actually fit the historical context perfectly. In fact, this psalm is traditionally known as a morning psalm, morning as in the beginning of the day, dawn. Based on the words of verse 5, that David slept and then awoke, it's traditionally believed to refer to the day after David fled from Jerusalem, the day after his son Absalom claimed the throne of Israel for himself. Given the precision, the precise time in history, it's worth then looking at that history so that we can put ourselves in the psalmist's shoes. So let's do that. Now you all know about King David, the second king of Israel, You know the story of his humble beginnings. He was the youngest son of Jesse, a shepherd, and yet he was the one chosen by God and anointed by Samuel, the last judge, as a seal on God's rejection of Saul's kingship. Despite David's humble position, he was obviously talented because he was recruited into Saul's court to calm his spirit with music. And He worked, it worked. The record makes no mention of how David felt about this because here was the next king performing for the the already rejected king. But later we see how faithful David was to the authority that Saul carried as king, even if he wasn't, even if he realized that Saul had rejected God. So we can be sure that 
David served faithfully. David was the one man in Israel who stood up to Goliath. And this brought him to the attention of the whole nation and eventually attracted Saul's jealousy and hatred. For maybe a decade, maybe more, David was a fugitive with a small band of powerful soldiers, David's mighty men. But David trusted God through this time and eventually Saul died. And at 30 years of age, David became king of the tribe of Judah. Seven years later, he became king over the whole of Israel. So he was 37 when he became king of the whole of Israel. He was a powerful king who trusted God and as a result he took the hill fortress of Jerusalem and made that his capital. He suppressed the Philistines and he built an empire that captured the key crossroads of the ancient world, which is right where Israel was. He also brought the centre of Israelite religion, the Ark of the Covenant, to Jerusalem. But David was far from a perfect man. In the books of Moses, the books of the law of Israel, there were seven laws relating to the king because God knew that Israel would have a king. Those seven rules are, those seven laws are, he would be appointed by God, he must be an Israelite, not a foreigner, he must write out a copy of the law by his own hand for his own use, he must not get lots of horses for himself, Solomon ignored that one, He must not return the people to Egypt. Sorry. He must not acquire excessive gold and silver for himself. Solomon ignored that one too. And finally, he must not acquire many wives for for himself in case they turn him away from God. And you know that Solomon did really badly at that one. Now, you might wonder how Solomon who was supposed to be so wise, got so much wrong. While his dad, King David, was not too careful with that last law either. This is his family tree. That's David there, the blue guy in the middle on that big line. All of the pink people are his wives. Quite a few of them. He collected wives like trophies. You know how he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, one of his faithful companions. Uriah was one of his champions in order to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. But there's an even worse story, the sordid story of Tamar, Amnon and Absalom, who are all over there. Tamar, Amnon and Absalom over on the left there. And this story reveals how poorly David managed his family. Now, Tamar was apparently a beautiful young woman. And her half-brother Amnon, David's firstborn son, and so heir to the throne, fell in love with her. He plotted a way to get Tamar alone. 
and he actually involved his father in it who dopily went along with the scheme just thoughtlessly and then Amnon raped her and then discarded her like rubbish Absalom her full brother you can see they have the same mother and father was left to care for a desolate Tamar the author of Samuel speaks of David's reaction the king of these two like this when King David heard of all these things he was very angry but that's all he does that's all there's nothing else that that is mentioned he got angry Absalom on the other hand nurses a great hatred against Amnon and two years later again with David's unthinking compliance this guy is completely oblivious to his children's emotions and motives Absalom invites Amnon to a party along with all his brothers and then slaughters Amnon David obviously identified somehow with Absalom because he just wanted to reunite with Absalom who ran away after he did this thing and finally when Absalom wangles his way back into the court David behaves bizarrely he just gives him the silent treatment eventually Absalom gets David to to meet with him and to give the appearance of reconciliation and from that Absalom starts a campaign to usurp David as king eventually Absalom goes to Hebron where where David was crowned king of Judah and has himself crowned as king and when David hears of this and all of the allies that Absalom's gathered who are obviously now David's enemies David flees the palace on the way down towards Jericho one of Saul's descendants threw stones at David and Shimei Shimei, that was his name, said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. That is the context for that first part of Psalm 3. That's the context for, for these words. How many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David's in a bad way, right? The truth of the matter is that some of it is his own fault. How bitter that must have been. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like crying out, how many enemies can a person have? Do you know what an enemy is? It's important to recognise that an enemy is someone who's 
placed themselves against you, who's working against you in some way. It's their actions, not your attitude towards them, that makes them your enemy. Perhaps you've had a jealous or ruthless co-worker who's undermined you. Or perhaps a family member built up a grudge and tried to turn others against you. Maybe a friend turned against you and tried to turn your other friends against you too. It can even happen in church when somebody turns against you for some reason and builds a campaign against you. How bitter is this betrayal? Two years ago it happened to me. Brothers and sisters in church became my enemies to my great distress, not because I turned against them, but because they turned against me, which is what makes an enemy. I felt like saying with David, I have so many enemies, so many are against me. So many are saying God will never rescue him. What could I do? How had I contributed to this? Was God still with me? The strange word in the psalm here, Selah, is some sort of musical notation, we think. No one knows for sure what it means, but perhaps the best guess is that it calls for a pause. So, let's pause for a moment and think about the times when we have had enemies rise up against us. How did we feel? What did it do to our relationship with God? How did we respond? So let's just think about that for a bit. Was it a friend? Was it a co-worker? Family member? Even someone at church or someone in a club? How did we feel? And what did that do to our relationship with God? And how did we respond to that? These are bitter feelings, so I don't want you to to wallow in them for too long. David's response is to recognize God's faithful protection. David has so much trust in God's faithful love that when the priest Zadok comes out to meet him as he's fleeing, Zadok has brought the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God amongst his people. And what does David say? If I can. David says, we'll get there. David says, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it 
and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Have you ever experienced that complete abandonment to God's will? You know, Muslims and and Middle Eastern Christians often talk about if it's God's will. But for Muslims, this is often a fatalistic statement. Allah will do as Allah wills, regardless of anything we do. But David's trust in God was, was more hopeful than that. He's placing himself in God's hands, but he has hope. David was so calm, so at peace with God's protection that he slept soundly. Now in sleep, we're at our most vulnerable And so when we're threatened or worried or frightened, when anything's going wrong in our lives, any stresses, any struggles, we struggle to sleep. We struggle to be vulnerable. And yet David, surrounded by hordes of enemies, sleeps soundly. He's unafraid of the thousands who are against him. Because he trusts that God is his shield. That's pretty serious trust. And you know, this is not just something that David can achieve. I've found that when my enemies are gathering against me, whether it be at work, that's happened a few times, or in church, that's only happened once, thank God, I sleep soundly. Why? Because... Because I know that even when, even when I'm not perfect, and that's always, even when my actions may have been a catalyst or even more, God is still my shield and my refuge. You know when I don't sleep well? I don't sleep well when I'm sure, when I know that I've hurt someone when I've made myself an enemy of someone else, that's when I struggle to sleep. Remember, as Christians, we have such a greater promise from God than David had, than David was aware of, because we know Jesus Christ. We know how God has paid for our sins by dying on a cross for us. We know how God has risen again so that we too might rise to new life. We know how Jesus has sent his spirit to give us power over sin and death. As Paul says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus is our yes from God. So because we have so much more reason to trust in God, we don't need to join David when he says, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. 
What do we do instead? As Christians, what do we do? We do what? Pray for our enemies. Yep. Forgive them. That's right. We love our enemies and we do good. If we try and um, step out and take vengeance, you know, it's not going to be the right, the right sort of thing, is it? Yeah. God says he'll... Vengeance is mine, yeah, says yeah, the Lord. Yeah. yeah. And Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Oh, by the way, the ungrateful and the evil there, that's us. That's who he's kind to. <laughs> and so we should be the same. Kind to the ungrateful and evil as well. But we can join David in his final triumphant cry in this psalm. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now, some of you may be aware, some of you may not be aware of this, but some of you may be aware of it, that today is Valentine's Day. This is a big deal in our culture. Do you know why? <laughs> I, I don't think that's why. <laughs> yeah. It is. But why is it a big business driver? Why Valentine's Day? Exactly. People need to be loved. They need to feel protected. And they need this now in our culture more than ever because we no longer as a culture trust in God's love and protection. We no longer feel God's love and protection. We've made ourselves into his enemies we deliberately rebel against him and mock him, just as Absalom did against David. Except unlike Absalom, we have absolutely no neglect to complain of. God has not been a bad father. But the point of Psalm 3 is that our true protection, our only real refuge of love for us, for anyone, is in the arms of God. We can turn to a handsome hunk or a sexy spunk to fulfill us, but we'll never be satisfied. As David says in another psalm, how precious is your love, your steadfast love. That word is a special word, hesed, that occurs throughout the Old Testament. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So each day, including Valentine's Day, let's not seek our ultimate refuge in the things of this earth, even other human beings, but rather in our loving, faithful God. Let's Let's make God our shield.
and refuge. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of our enemies, you are our shield, you are our protector. Your love never abandons nor forsakes us. You never leave us desiring more. Help us, Lord, to recognize that you are our utmost priority, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you deserve everything that we are, everything that we have. Give us the strength and the faith to give you all. In Jesus' name, amen.